For several weeks now, we have been working our way through a sermon series that we are calling And, and we've been looking at several significant statements in Scripture that are tied together with the word and. We've looked at uh, grace and truth. Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. And what we've said is that those attributes of God are not in conflict with one another. In other words, God doesn't have to abandon his grace to be truthful to us, and he doesn't abandon truth to be gracious with us. And from there, we went and we talked about justice and mercy. And again, there is no conflict in God when it comes to his justice and his mercy. He doesn't sacrifice his mercy to be just. He doesn't sacrifice his justice to be merciful. Those are always present in God. Last week, we talked about how we access this great salvation, and we said it is through faith and works, or more specifically, it is through a faith that works. And so today, we're going to continue the the and conversation, and we're going to stay on the subject of salvation. We're going to go to the next step. This this is probably the most challenging uh, and that we've talked about yet. And the question we're going to answer is this. Who is responsible for our salvation, for our faith? Who is responsible? Is, does God freely choose us, or do we choose God? Now, typically, if you're you know, dialed into this debate, it's usually set up with an or, It's either God chooses us, and we have words for that like election or predestination. It's either that, or it's what we call free will. We choose him. And I'm wondering today, if we take out the or and we replace it with the and, if there's a a path forward. I'm going to take away the word predestination in the beginning and the word free will And I'm going to replace those with two other words, sovereignty and responsibility. God is sovereign, which means God is in control, and we are responsible. God chooses, and we must choose. God predestines, and we must act. God is sovereign, and we are responsible. So join me as we pray for the reading of God's word. Father God, I ask that you would reign over my speaking. I pray that you would reign over our hearing today. We pray that your word would be our guide. That your spirit would be present. Your glory would be our greatest desire. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are saved by a faith that works. Who's responsible for that saving faith? So I'm going to lay out five truths today from Scripture, and they're going to kind of build upon one another. The first truth is that we are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by grace through faith. The second truth is that faith is a gift that God gives us. Faith is a gift that God gives us. The third truth is that God chooses to whom he gives that gift. And then the fourth truth is that God makes that choice before creation. 
before the beginning of time. And the fifth truth is that we are responsible. None of those things negate the fact that we are all responsible for our choices. So here we go. Truth number one. We are saved by grace through faith. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we're just going to look at the first portion of that. Ephesians 2, 8 says this very clearly. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. There's nothing unclear about that sentence. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. We are saved by grace, which is to say that we are not saved based on any merit of our own but only out of the sheer goodness of God. It is all about what God has done for us. So let, let's just work that out. We have done nothing. Nobody here has done anything to kind of capture God's attention as one worthy of salvation where God has looked down and said, whoa, now there's a person that I want to choose because look at how, how great they, they're doing. We have done nothing to capture God's attention as one worthy of salvation above anybody else. We have not placed, our, placed God in our debt. God's not in our debt by virtue of our good deeds or by virtue of our good heart or even by virtue of our good intentions. It sounds kind of harsh, but I'll say it this way. God owes us nothing. God owes us nothing. I wonder if you would join me in saying God owes me nothing. If, if you believe that, join me. If you don't believe me, don't say it. I don't want to make you say something you don't believe. But if you believe me, go ahead. God owes me nothing. So that's not entirely true. <laughs> I don't mean to turn us all into liars, uh, but the fact is God does owe us something. We have a wage coming towards us based on our works, and the works that we have, have committed are, are, are sinful works. The Bible says the wages of our, our works, what God owes us, is death. If God is going to give us what it is that he owes us, it's death. The wages of sin is death, which means the fact that anybody is saved, anyone is saved, is on account of nothing but the grace of God. That's what we mean when we say we are saved by grace. It means none of us are saved unless the grace of God acts. Help me finish this lyric. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. Why do we call God's grace amazing? What is it about God's grace that makes it amazing? God's grace is amazing because he gives it to a wretch like me. To a wretch who's deserving of nothing but condemnation. God's grace is amazing because there's not one single person who deserves it, and yet he gives it so generously. 
God's grace is amazing because what we deserve, in fact, is just the opposite, condemnation. So we talk about free will. God has given us agency. God has given us a will. We have willpower. And the way we've used our willpower is to rebel against him. We willfully rebel against our God. Now, we like to minimize that as if it's really not that big of a deal. Okay, maybe we're rebel with a a small little R, but we're going to come to see what a big deal it is. The only thing that you have contributed to your salvation, the only thing that I have contributed to my salvation is my need. That's what I've done. I've, I've placed myself in this position where I have this incredible need. That's my contribution. By our own will, we have become spiritually bankrupt. The scripture actually uses a different metaphor, a different picture. It says, we are dead in our sins. Paul describes that earlier in chapter 2. He begins chapter 2 this way. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins in which you used to live. And then verse 3, he, he gets that even, makes it more pointed. You were by nature an object of wrath. By nature, you were deserving of wrath. That's what God owes us, wrath. That's rebel with a capital R. We were by nature objects of wrath. This is the challenge that we bump into when we push the, the free will argument. You know, that, that it's up to us to choose God. Our will is not truly free. We say we have free will, but our, our will stopped being free a long time ago. We have a will, we have willpower, but our, our will is bound to our nature. You can only will something that is in keeping with your nature. So if we were to all take a field trip to the North Bridge today, we could will ourselves to walk across the bridge because walking is in keeping with our nature. We can will that. None of us can will ourselves to fly across the bridge because in our nature, we are not a, a bird. That's, that's contrary to who we are. We can't will that to happen. If we are objects of, of wrath, if we have this sin nature, we can't will something that is contrary to our nature. The only way that our, our will is truly free, think of a prisoner in like a, a 10 by 10 cell. Within the confines of that cell, they have free will. And they can even do good things in that prison cell. It's not saying that, that they can't do anything good. They can do good things. But by their will, the one thing they can't do is open the prison door. They're captive. Because we are corrupted by sin, our will, our choosing, has been corrupted as well. Our will's connected to our nature. So if, if what I'm saying is true, it paints a pretty depressing picture. I'm sorry, on Mother's Day. Right? It, this is kind of depressing. It's heavy. This paints kind of a, a desperate picture. This is not a popular message today. This is not the up with people message that we love to hear. 
We are dead in our sins, and there's nothing we can do about it. How very un-American. Like, this is not pull yourself up by your bootstraps. None of us have the capacity to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps when it comes to salvation. You cannot do anything you set your mind to. You cannot save yourself. Apart from the initiative of God, truthfully, you have no desire to save yourself. There's not a single person that apart from God's acting is even thinking about it, is even caring about that. So here's one reason why this is so important. The more desperate we understand our condition to be, that saved a wretch like me, the more we truly come to believe that, the greater grace becomes. The more amazing grace becomes. The only reason that maybe grace isn't truly amazing in our minds is because we haven't come to believe how desperate we truly are. Once you come to recognize how desperate you truly are, and you recognize that the only reason I'm saved is because God has acted, grace becomes amazing. We were by nature objects of wrath. Praise God, the sentence doesn't end. But, here comes the grace. But, because of his great love for us, his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. This is what God has done. He made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in sins. It is by grace you have been saved. There it is again. It is by grace you have been saved. Again, the more desperate we understand our situation to be, the more amazing grace becomes. Jesus said it this way, whoever has been forgiven much, loves much. God's grace is amazing because he does for you what you are not able to do for yourself. God doesn't meet us halfway in salvation. God doesn't climb halfway down Jacob's ladder and then say to us, meet me halfway. Climb on up halfway and we'll meet in the middle. Whoever came up with that song, We Are Climbing Jacob's Ladder, you remember singing that when you were a kid around the campfire? Every round goes higher, higher. This is not the gospel. Like, remember the story? We don't climb Jacob's ladder. Jacob had a vision of angels coming down the ladder. God descends the ladder to reach us because we are dead. Dead people don't climb ladders. People who are dead in their sins don't climb ladders. We don't even have the capacity to reach out and grab the ladder. Our salvation is entirely about what God does for us. We can't will our salvation any more than Lazarus, dead in a tomb, could will his salvation. Remember, it was Jesus who spoke into the tomb, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus didn't have the capacity to will himself out of his deadness, God brings dead things to life. So this is what we mean when we say it is by grace that we have been saved. That's truth number one. Truth number two, faith is a gift from God. This I know, 
for the Bible tells me so. So we finish Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and it says this, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourself. This saving faith, it's not from yourself. It is the gift of God. Not by works that anyone should boast. It is like Paul is bending over backwards to make sure we recognize that this saving faith is not from ourselves, but it's a gift that God has given to us. It's not an, uh, our act of the will. It is God's act of the will. So we might ask the question, why does it really matter? I mean, why is this significant at all? If we choose our faith or if God chooses faith for us, if it's a gift, the reason it matters, Paul thinks, is, is entirely about the glory of God. It's not from yourself, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. If there's going to be any boasting, we're going to boast in what God has done. If there's going to be any testimony that has been shared, it's not going to be, this is what I've done. It's going to be, this is what God has done. This is what Christ has done. If there's going to be any credit that's given, it's going to be given to him. We have a word for this. Boasting in the Lord, testifying to, to what he has done, giving credit. It's what we call worship. It's what we do here. We come to boast in the Lord because of what he has done, not what we have done. When you come to recognize the depth of your need and the riches of God's grace, you can't help but kneel just a little bit lower. In 1979, uh, my mom is here, and she'll remember this well. Uh, we, at Blizzard of 1979, we lived next to our neighbor, and we shared a driveway. And uh, so much snow, and that driveway was, was snowblown over and over again, so much so that the snow was up to the, the first floor windows. And my neighbor friend and I climbed up to the top of the bank, and we were peering in the windows of my neighbor's house, kind of spying on his family. And where I was crawling up against the house, there was a hollow spot under the snow, and it caved in. It collapsed. And I went down to the bottom of that snowdrift. The house on my right, the snowdrift on my right, and as I fell, my hands got pinned beneath me. I could do nothing. I could not even move. It was so heavy on me. I could do one thing, and I did it well. <laughs> you know, I, I cried. And my neighbor friend ran and got my sister and got my mom, and, and they came out. And, and I'm down there, and I can't see them. It's just a snow pit, but I can hear them. And my sister freaked out. He's going to die. <laughs> it was super helpful. They, they honestly, I mean, it was kind of a treacherous situation. They didn't know how to get to me. They climb up on the snowdrift. It might all collapse on me. And so they're trying to figure out what, what to do, and in all the commotion, there's a neighbor lady who's walking down the street, and she sees what's going on, and she comes, and somehow she managed to climb up on the drift, and she reached down. I couldn't even reach up to grab her hand. She reached down and got my coat and was able to lift me up out of my pit. Now, here's what didn't happen. I didn't get out of there and say, I did it! 
I, I didn't say anything. I went and cried in the corner. <laughs> my mom and my, my sister didn't say, well done, Scott, you did it. No, we turned to this woman. Thank you. She did it. The reason I was saved was because she did it. The same is true as our salvation. It is a gift of God. It is all about what God has done. So truth one, we're saved by grace through faith. Truth two, faith is a gift from God. Truth, truth three, God chooses, God elects to whom he gives the gift. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. We call it the doctrine of election. God elects, God chooses to whom he gives the gift of faith, and this is probably where we all begin to squirm. Isaac's squirming. This is where we start to get a little uncomfortable. Those first two things we'll all easily, quickly agree on. Yes, God saves us by, by grace alone, and yes, faith is, is a gift, but this idea that God chooses to whom he gives the gift... That just does not quite seem right, doesn't seem fair. But biblically speaking, if we look at the scriptures, this is not a radical teaching. This is not a teaching based on some fringe, obscure passages in scripture. The entire biblical story is based on God choosing. When we go all the way back to the beginning, to Abraham, chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to that land I will show you. I will, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. So it leaps off the passage is the will of God. Six times, I will. God willed to choose Abraham. God willed to set Abraham apart from every other person. God chose to make Abraham into a great nation. God chose to make that great nation his chosen people. In the New Testament times, God has chosen to graft in some Gentiles, that's us, into this, this vine, into this branch. God chooses. And then we come to verse 4. So Abram left. God's sovereignty, human responsibility, I will, and Abram left. If we struggle with the idea of election today that God chooses, then we have to struggle with Abraham. And we have to struggle with, with Israel, this chosen nation, to whom God says, I'm going to be your God, and you're all going to be my people. I mean, why Abraham? Is Abraham any better than the, the person down the, the path? Why Israel? Were the Hebrew people any better than any other nation at the time? They weren't even a nation. God made them a nation. Why Jacob and not Esau? Was Jacob better? No. He's kind of a rascal. Why Isaac and not Ishmael? 
Even to the disciples, Jesus made it clear. He said, you did not choose me. Let's just make this clear. You didn't choose me. I chose you. John 15, verse 16, I chose you. I appointed you to go and bear fruit. So if you're a Christ follower today, it's because God chose you. Now, the part that makes us uncomfortable is not that. It's the, the question that, that is begging to be asked, what about everyone else? Are you saying that God is not choosing other people? I am saying that, but I'm not saying there's no hope. So to someone today who's not a Christ follower, we're not saying God didn't choose you. We're saying we have no idea. If something stirs in your heart and you call out to God, then I know. Then I know that God chose you. It's a sign that you're chosen. God's sovereign will does not negate our responsibility. We are responsible. Logic leads us to the conclusion that it should negate our responsibility. If the only way that I can come to God is if God draws me and God doesn't draw me, then who's responsible? Is it not God's fault? Doesn't logic take us to that, that conclusion? Well, we're not the first people to think that. Christians wrestled with that in the first century, and so Paul wrote to the Romans and addressed this very issue. Verse, so he's uh, laying this case using the case study of Jacob and Esau, how God chose the twin brother Jacob, didn't choose Esau, and then he raises this rhetorical question in verse 14 of chapter 9. What shall we say? Is God unjust? Like, this is totally unfair. Why Jacob and not Esau? Shall we say God is unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Remember, he doesn't owe us anything. And so the fact that he gives mercy to some is nothing but grace. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or man's effort, but on God's mercy. So then he advances the argument in verse 19. One of you is going to say to me, then why does God still blame us? Like, if it's all about what he does or doesn't do, then how dare he blame us? For who resists his will? This is how Paul answers that objection. But who are you to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purpose, purposes and some for noble use? You see what this passage from Romans is making clear is that God is really the only one whose will is truly free. God has free will. And in this passage, he sounds an awful lot like God. The fact that he chooses to extend mercy to anyone is sheer grace. We're saved by grace alone. Faith is a, a free gift that, that God gives. Third truth, God chooses to whom he gives the gift. And the fourth truth God makes that choice, that election, before the creation of the world. This I know, 
for the Bible tells me so. Again, it's a difficult teaching. This is where we talk about predestination. It's a difficult teaching, but it's not a radical teaching. It's not from some obscure passage. It's central to the, the teaching of the scripture. Most clearly in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And in verse 11, he repeats himself, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Again, God sure sounds like God in these passages. He's the God who, who acts, the God who takes initiative. He has plans. His plans work out. Everything conforms to his plans. And it all accomplishes the purpose of his will. So it's understandable that we have some objections to this teaching. It rubs us the wrong way. Doesn't seem fair. Doesn't seem equitable especially as we think about people that we love, people that we're concerned about, people whose salvation we are praying for. So here's where I find comfort. God desires his house to be full. Jesus told a parable about a, a man who was having a great banquet, and he sent servants out to invite people to come to the banquet, and you know what they did? They rejected the invitation. Nobody came, but he wanted his house to be full. And so he said to his servants, go further. And he said this, make them come. Compel them to come. They're not going to come on their own initiative. You need to go out and make them come. Compel them to come. God wants his house to be full. Listen to this. Please get this. Predestination is not an armed guard to keep people out of heaven. Predestination is not an armed guard to keep people out. It is just the opposite. It is a divine escort to bring people in who otherwise wouldn't come. They're not coming on their own. They need a divine escort. They need to be compelled. And because God is gracious and because God is merciful, he does just that. This should be incredible hope for us who have loved ones that we are praying for, that God will act and he'll do something that, frankly, they're not interested in doing, that he will compel them to come. So I'll, I'll close. Uh, those of you who know your, your Bibles well, you'll know that there's other verses that I haven't mentioned today. There's a reason we struggle with this, because there are tensions in the text. I mean, what about John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever, seems like God desires everyone to come, and it's kind of the decision is in our lap. So I, I'll acknowledge that there's tensions in the t text, but I will say this very clearly, and I'll stand on this truth. We must not put in the word or, that it's predestination or free will. It is very clearly and. God is sovereign. And... We are 
responsible. Join me as we pray. Father God, we boast in you. Lord, we boast in you that you are so merciful and so gracious that you draw people to yourself who otherwise wouldn't come. And Lord, right now, maybe we're thinking uh, of people in our own orbit uh, that we love, and we're not sure, Lord, uh, if they've chosen you. And Lord, we pray that you would move in a powerful way in, in their life, that you would tear down obstacles, Lord, that you would move, that you would speak into that, that cave, Lazarus, come out, and that people would be saved, and all glory would go to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.